This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is cloud computing? How are U.S. federal agencies increasingly employing secure and scalable cloud solutions? And how does this all help government agencies transform how they operate? I'll explore these questions and more with Mark Lerner from the Partnership for Public Service. We'll be exploring the insights from a collaborative report with the IBM Center, Mobilizing Cloud Computing for Public Service. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mark, before we delve into specifics about this report, um, would you tell us more about cloud computing? What exactly is it? Yeah. So, um, I'll start by telling you about a sticker that I have on my fridge. Um, So I've got one of these stickers that um, just has this picture of a cloud, and it says, there is no cloud, it's just someone else's computer. It's pithy, but I think it's pretty true, right? Cloud computing is the use of remote servers and services hosted on the internet by someone else, right? NIST talks about this as being uh, about ubiquitous and convenient on-demand access. And one of the key factors about this is that you're leveraging the tools, you're leveraging the infrastructure that someone else has been building out and someone else is managing on your behalf. Um, So, you know, again, it's not that as an actual ephemeral cloud, of course, right? Um, It's someone else's computer and it comes with all the benefits uh, therein. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I love that little sticker too. (laughs) So uh, coming full circle, so to speak, about the report, um, Mobilizing uh, Cloud Computing for Public Service, Mm -hmm. you know, I was wondering why are U.S. federal agencies increasingly employing secure and scalable cloud solutions, and how does doing this help them achieve their mission? Yeah, so a couple of different thoughts here. Um, One, there are government-wide imperatives on using the cloud set forth in the cloud-first, cloud-smart strategies, right? You've seen these. Um, However, it's not just that there's an imperative to do so. It's also just innately obvious the benefits that exist here, right? Scalability, flexibility, convenience, access to uh, collaboration tools, uh, cost efficiency. Um, It's no longer about why we should be using the cloud. It's now about how. That's a great point. And I was wondering, um, this is uh, one of many collaborations uh, the Partnership for Public Service has done with the IBM Center for the report. But what prompted the interest in this topic and in your research, and and how did you and your team conduct that research? Yeah, so we're 10 plus years into federal strategies around cloud computing, and we wanted to take a moment to speak to the implementers. Um, there was interest in understanding the current state of cloud adoption and cloud usage across agencies, and in conversations with our colleagues over at IBM, we wanted to know a little bit more about how folks were leveraging 
cloud computing in real ways and to highlight the real stories of challenges, frankly, and successes. Um, importantly, and critically to this, we really wanted to focus on how cloud computing is driving positive outcomes for the public, how it's transformed the workforce, how it is affecting the relationships between government and vendors. Um, all of these topics focus on the stories of real implementation. And so to that end, we held a series of webinars, three of them, where we invited speakers from nine different federal organizations who were leaders in cloud adoption, uh, who have uh, run through cloud strategies within their organizations. Um, and we gave them a platform to share their stories. This report is a synthesis of those webinars. And I do want to say that the webinars are available online, and I encourage folks to actually go and, and hear the stories directly from those experts as well. How, how can they get their hands on those? Yeah, um, we have links to those in the uh, partnership website and on directly in the report. Wonderful. So, you know, you, you do a wonderful job. You, your team did a wonderful job with the vignettes, uh, with all of the uh, agencies that you've had there tell their story about their cloud journey. I was wondering, before we talk about a specific agency, could you outline some of the keys to successful cloud computing? Yeah, absolutely. So throughout the webinars, throughout the wisdom from the experts that we gathered together, uh, we distilled down five keys, right? Five, a five-point framework. I'll note two things about this before I dive into it. One, it's not a sort of successive, phased-out approach. It's that all of these different elements have to be done in tandem. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and two, it might seem simple up front, but I implore you and I implore the audience, um, don't let the simplicity lead to ignorance. These things are very, very important. The five keys here are planning, testing, security, transformation, and optimization. Again, these may seem obvious. Really quickly, just to dive into what each of these mean for planning you got to plan for your needs. You have to plan for collaboration, for the problems you're trying to solve, and for the future. On testing, um, we're talking about agile forms of testing here to catch critical issues before uh, cloud deployment. Um, especially when it comes to tools of this scale, it is really critical for you to know with confidence that it works. Um, on the topic of security, um, a cybersecurity mindset is really key when you're handling sensitive public data. And it's not just about the software, it's also about your organizational structure. Um, transformation, we're talking about supporting uh, people's use of cloud tools, of, of cloud techniques, and how that fosters innovation, working with your workforce to enable and, and supercharge their capabilities. And optimization is that long tail. It's taking a look at the continuous improvement, the continuous measurement, and, and the consistent relationships that you're going to have with your customers, with your clients, with your workforce, with your leadership, and with your strategic partners. That's wonderful. And let's let's go down with each one of these. And, sure. and in particular, kind of uh, uh, talk about the agency that, that, that illustrated, if you will, the success around a particular key. And, and careful planning and strategic collaboration is, is, is important, as you point out, uh, for, cloud, uh, for the cloud journey. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, otherwise known as NOAA, what their cloud journey was like, and how did careful planning factor into their success? Yeah. 
Yeah, this is actually a great story. So we had um, Captain Joseph Bukowski, who's the acting director for NOAA's Cloud PMO, join us for a webinar. And and he told this story about how uh, a NOAA pilot was flying a plane in the middle of Hurricane Ian and live transmitting data captured on this hurricane chaser down to NOAA data centers, live processing and live dissemination of that data to uh, key decision makers to inform evacuation plans. This is life-or-death decision-making happening, enabled by cloud computing, enabled by modern technology. And for NOAA in particular, they have very specific requirements for their scientific mission, right? They have a variety of different kinds of of work that they do, Um, marine fisheries services, weather services, um, marine and aviation operations, lots of different lanes that exist within one agency. Um, And while these agencies each have their own swim lanes, what they did to to build out their cloud strategy was plan together what are their uh, joint needs, right? And to go to GSA and actually uh, in close collaboration with GSA, build out a careful and thoughtful planning process for uh, adopting cloud. I am a bit of a procurement nerd, and so one of the things that I, I like uh, yeah, one of the things that I love to point out is that they went with an approach to using a statement of uh, objectives as opposed to a statement of work, um, and direct language from the solicitation. Um, they requested, and I'll quote here: "Cloud storage services that will provide persistent storage, backup service, long-term storage, community of operations, and disaster recovery services." That might seem like a lot, but it's very carefully decided upon what their mission is and what are the things that they need jointly across their entire organization. Mark, did they sort of use a multi-cloud approach? And I was wondering, how is that helping them execute on those various sundry missions? Absolutely. So, yeah, that all their planning led to a multi-cloud solution, which uh, is really critical for their space because they absolutely need to ensure continuity of operations. As I mentioned, they need to ensure um, consistency across their different services. Um, they can't wait for someone to go through some kind of multi-factor authentication service because one service is down. Um, they need something that works in their mission uh, uh, state and using a multi-cloud solution enables them to get the benefits of using various different providers and not have to rely on or have a sort of single point of failure in this case, which is very critical given their their mission. mission. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I love about the report is that you folks uh, provide insight from experts that could help other agencies. And I was wondering, would you share some of those insights around the topic, uh, underscoring the importance of planning? Yeah. Absolutely. Again, you know, I'm harping on this quite a bit, but from the NOAA space, the thing that we learned the most, know your mission, know your problems, know what you're trying to solve, include your customers, include your strategic partners. And one thing I'll note is I gave this example here, but the needs of NOAA are going to be very different than your needs, right? And and your needs are going to be different from someone else's needs. Uh, you might have a specific unique context that does allow for more flexibility than what NOAA has or doesn't or is even more rest- uh, restricted. All of those are things that you need to understand and know before you start making large-scale purchasing decisions. Um, and so you need to plan accordingly. Mm, that's a great point. You know, uh, your report or the report um, – points out that uh, agile testing catches critical issues before deployment. And I, I want to talk about that in regards to FEMA's yeah. efforts there. Could you tell us more about their agile strategies for deployment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, it's interesting because, again, Hurricane Ian, right, you'll see FEMA response right on the ground for that. The, the difficulty there is uh, 
FEMA's response teams literally carry physical equipment into disaster sites and into operations. And they need to because, again, much like how NOAA's mission is critical, um, they're in life or death situations where they need to make life-saving decisions and they need the infrastructure in place to make that happen. FEMA's got a wide variety of different parts of its mission. Um, A lot of it is on-the-ground response. A lot of it is also providing financial assistance to people uh, before, during, and after a disaster strikes. I actually had the pleasure of working on FEMA Go, which is their uh, cloud-based disaster response grant-making system. And that entire uh, system has to scale rapidly because as soon as a disaster strikes and people are applying for grants to rebuild their homes and rebuild their lives, they need that system to work. And they can't wait for, again, a loading screen. When they're in a moment of panic and saying, do I have a home? How do I build myself back up from this? So their immediate on-the-ground response and the long-term build back relies on technology. Without cloud without other critical technologies like mobile computing, this can be very challenging. But uh, we heard from James Rod, who's the cloud manager, cloud portfolio manager over at FEMA, um, that they are not only trying to build out cloud solutions to change all of that, but testing is incredibly important. Again, because they need to ensure that this thing works in the moment that it's needed most. And also to ensure, um, as he puts it, equitable and exhaustive solutions are in place for the people that need it most. That's a great point. So in this particular area, this particular key around, you know, uh, testing, were there any insights you'd like to share from the experts? Yeah. Um, Again, I'll I'll refer back to James Rod here. So uh, FEMA's tests, when it comes to deploying cloud tools and cloud software, they need to make sure that when it gets deployed, that transition is frictionless. Since cutting someone's access to data, cutting someone's access to a service that's going to help them um, or someone's access when they're a field operator and they need to support someone else is simply not an option. How is the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs making veterans' experience more customer-centric and secure through sophisticated cloud services? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on mobilizing cloud computing for public service with Mark Lerner from the Partnership for Public Service. 
So we move forward and we talk about the uh, next area, and it kind of it kind of dovetails uh, when you, we were talking about the in the last segment. We were talking about FEMA dealing with uh, folks who were in really trying situations, and that's the customer for them at that particular point. So the other uh, vignette from an agency you, you talk about in your report is the uh, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Yes, and I, I want to talk about how they're making the veterans' experience more customer centric and secure through a cloud services journey. Yeah. Um, One thing I'll note right up front is there is sometimes a belief that security and and customer experience are are two things that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The Department of Veteran Affairs showcases that that's not the case. Right, and they're very—they're a great example of this. We got to talk to of uh, Dave Catanasso over there, who's the acting director of a particular office where a lot of this is centralized: um, application hosting, cloud, and edge solutions at the Department of Veteran Affairs. And one of the things that they've focused on quite a bit, knowing that they have a huge mission of serving veterans across the country, across the globe, frankly, um, is zero trust architecture. When you're supporting veterans and and you're responsible for their health and their data, you need to be sure that you're going to treat that data with respect and that you're going to secure it as part of the way of treating them effectively. And so the ways that of course, zero trust architecture now um, is even more critical given that there are new daily cybersecurity threats coming in. They're increased and it's easier to create uh, different attacks and it's harder to contain them all. And so building this sort of strong security combined with a focus on customer centricity has allowed the VA to provide modern, accessible digital services. They are at the lead, at the forefront in a lot of ways of building out a variety of different systems, um, including my health, uh, my healthy vet, which lets veterans create accounts and manage prescriptions, or VA Vetio Connect, which enables a huge increase in telehealth visits. Those are critical to providing strong customer experience, but cannot come at the expense of security. Just like heightened security cannot come at the expense of the experience of people that need healthcare. Yeah, that's a great point. And I was wondering from that. Uh, discussion with the VA leader, were there any insights they would want to share about how to how to deal with cybersecurity? In yeah, the cloud absolutely. So one of the things that David shares is a security-first culture, okay. a security-first mindset across the entire organization. He refers to it as part of the bloodstream at the VA. I find that to be really valuable in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you said earlier about the, the third area was like, cloud fostering innovation. I want, to, I want to touch base on that and and supporting the people in the agencies who are leading, who are doing the mission work mm-hmm. using cloud. And how has prioritizing people, if you will, um, staff spurred the cloud-enabled innovation? And let's use the Census Bureau as an example, if you would. It's a great example, actually, one of my favorites. So, um, Census Bureau in 2020 took their census uh, uh, duties online, and there are hundreds of thousands of enumerators armed with cloud-equipped handheld devices that get deployed to everywhere in the United States, every territory, and assigned to count every single resident. Using cloud tools here was critical. And we talked to Brock Webb, who is a technology strategist at their computer services division, what I found really fascinating was that technology was about 10% of the process, according to Brock. The 90% of it was the people and the culture. And so they did a lot to try and build up 
internally the cultural elements of being able to use cloud-enabled tools. They set up a Census Bureau Data Academy. They built out the Bureau's secure cloud team. And they did what they could to really expand the use of these cloud technologies uh, in preparation for, during, and in usage of all the data they collected. Mm, you know, and I think from reading the report, mm-hmm. um, something similar happened at the Office of Personnel Management, excuse me, OPM. Right. What exactly happened there? Yeah, actually very similar. Um, a focus on training, on professional development, and on culture of innovation inside of their staff, right? Uh, they focused quite heavily on employee experience in their cloud adoption because they too serve a massive uh, set of folks, um, in this case, the uh, the federal civil servants, and in terms of the technology itself, frankly, you know, yes, it's complex, but the people orientation is going to be key to adopting these types of tools. And so they focused quite heavily on that piece within their workforce. Mm, that's great. So are there any insights that you'd want to share from the experts regarding, you know, supporting agency staff as yeah. they journey uh, through the cloud services? Actually, a really critical one here structured support. Oh, interesting. What do they mean by that? Yeah. So structured support in this case, it it is always a good thing for a leader to stand up and say, this is important. It's always a good thing for you to try and put out, for instance, a set of values. But structured support comes in the form of resources, in the form of training, incentives, mentors. Um, These are literal elements that you can bring to bear within your agency to put resources in the hands of the people that you're trying to uh, uh, enable with cloud tools um, and and creating it in a structured way and not just sort of in a, you know, flimsy way mm-hmm. shows that you're serious about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, you, you, the report actually notes, and you've made a comment about this, that cloud optimization strategies, which I'd like to sort of define that, but they have a tendency to reduce costs and maximize performance. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us more about how that happens and maybe... You can illustrate the NIH example. Yeah, yeah. This is, of all the examples, I feel like this is actually one of the most powerful ones in a way. Um, NIH has a, much like many of the other agencies do, a massive mission. In this case, they aimed to, and I'll actually put uh, put this in their direct words, their aim is to modernize biomedical research by reducing economic and process barriers in utilizing commercial cloud services. Let me break that down a little bit. For using massive data sets when it comes to, say, genetic material or other types of science, oftentimes it has been restricted to institutions that have the infrastructure, the wealth, um, the, the staffing that can enable that kind of science. And while that's important, we're lacking in diversity of researchers if we restrict it to just the institutions that have the resources. What NIH has done has built out a cloud environment that makes it possible for researchers across the globe to collaborate, regardless of the kinds of resources that they have. All they need is a connection to the internet, and they can use uh, NIH's infrastructure, NIH's data, to do the science that all of us need and depend on. A really excellent example here is that they were able to share out uh, COVID genetic material, COVID genetic data, I should say, within a day. So that people across the globe, regardless of what kind of tools, technology, and infrastructure they had, were able to get straight to the science and get us closer to finding a solution at the start of this pandemic. That's fascinating. You know, um, I had another question to follow on to the NIH um, cloud strategy. Uh, To what extent does it uh, call for modernizing standards for for data practices? It's a good question because, again, with with an institution like that, um, there's this balance. And they actually try and strike this balance between 
open access of data and sharing this data across different institutions for the sake of being able to do this important scientific research and data privacy to enable um, equitable and ethical science while using data that frankly does have to do with people's individual health. One of the ways that they've gone about that is by mandating data sharing policies. So when you're using uh, cloud services provided by NIH, if you receive funds from NIH to do your science, you now have this new mandate of data sharing, data management, and and data collaboration for how you manage the uh, important information that you have and how you share it across for scientific discovery. That's great. Um, are there any insights, Mark, from experts that you would like to share in the area around cloud optimization? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, taking from the story of NIH here, forecasting future needs. They did this before the pandemic happened, right? They built out this kind of infrastructure prior to the pandemic. And they did it because they understood that there was going to be a need at some point. And they had their own needs then. Um, and then as soon as the pandemic hit, it was ready and available. And so forecasting for future needs, enabling agencies to expand on usage of cloud, not just for what we have now, but for what you're planning for in the future and what might come in the future is critically important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking about the the webinars, what you, what you gained in terms of insight from uh, talking to the folks who are on the front line doing this, I'm wondering, uh, looking ahead short term, what comes next for agency use in cloud computing? Yeah. Uh, We're going to see more cloud usage. We're going to see more agencies move data, move operations to the cloud. Uh, We're going to see a lot of innovations on the ground. Um, A lot of data moving into the cloud means that people that are on the ground, whether it's in disaster response or whether it's in a front office at at an agency somewhere, um, say, for instance, getting your passport, all of those different operations are going to be transformed. And what I'm most looking forward to, actually, is fluid data sharing. We're going to see sharing of data across different agencies, increased public access to data, and increased transparency. Because once it's on the cloud, it's much easier to maneuver and and share out. Okay. And I was wondering, maybe you can prognosticate longer term? Yeah. What do you think? Um, I really think it's transformative, right? We're taking a look here at how using modern tools, modern technologies, modern ways of working uh, takes agencies from where they are now, which can sometimes be siloed or leveraging the cloud adoption that they have right now, into a place where they are more effective, more equitable, more accessible. And and ultimately, as again, uh, you know, I referred to earlier in terms of why we wanted to dive into this, revolutionize how our government serves the people. That's a great point. And uh, it's a nice transition. We've talked about the report. You gave a great overview of it and really delved a little deep into it. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the mission of the Partnership for Public Service. It's a mission I love, to build a better government and a stronger democracy. That's great. Yeah, simple and clean. And Yeah, it it is, you know, going a little bit deeper. um, It's about that sort of creating a dynamic, innovative federal government. And and for me personally, in the space of government modernization and technology and innovation, uh, that means supporting government in building equitable services and effective outcomes for people using these modern ways of working, technology, innovation, data, design, customer experience, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, all of these things combined to create a government that delivers better services more equitably, more efficiently to the public. Yeah. Is there, are there any plans for follow-up research in this area? Or do you, maybe you want to tease some other research that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Reports like this do live on at the partnership. Um, like other reports we've actually done in collaboration with the IBM Center, um, I expect that this report will be relevant for years and leveraged for years. Um, the partnership itself uses our own research to fuel the rest of our programming, such as our communities that we manage and the leadership institute that we have. Of course, we're always diving deeper into additional research questions and we're always excited about what more there is to learn about how the government is using technology and innovation, how it's being leveraged currently, um, and and how we can improve the government operations to the benefit of the public. Mark, how can folks get to this content? What's yep. the website they can... They can find all of us at ourpublicservice.org. Wonderful. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I continue my discussion on cloud computing when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on mobilizing cloud computing for public service. In this segment, I welcome the insights of Professor David Wild, author of the IBM Center Report, Moving to the Cloud, an Introduction to Cloud Computing in Government. Professor, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Professor, the term cloud computing is suddenly everywhere with government leaders, industry executives, and the press talking excitedly about this concept. Your report for the IBM Center examines both the interest in and the technology surrounding cloud computing and why it's receiving such increased attention. Dr. Wild, what is cloud computing? Well, that is a good question today, and, and sometimes the, the definition depends on vendor perspectives because they will try to say, what we're offering, what we may have been offering for 10 years now is a cloud product. But basically, in a nutshell, cloud computing is the ability to draw computing resources uh, on demand from the web anytime, anywhere, so long as you have an internet connection and a web browser. And so what it really does is change the whole paradigm of computing from I need to have a, a, a powerful desktop, powerful servers within my organization in order to do what I need to do to where I change the perspective of I'm drawing on the resources I need at the time, but also freeing myself to be able to do work basically anywhere, anytime, from any location, so long as I do have an internet connection. In a nutshell, the idea of cloud computing is that computing will become location and device independent. What are some of the other benefits of cloud computing? 
Well, there's a, there's a number of benefits to cloud computing. The first, uh, kind of to reiterate the fact that it enables you to have great computing resources available at your fingertips wherever you may be working and whatever type of machine you may be working from. Some of the other benefits come into play in terms of the economics of the cloud because what it means is that you don't necessarily have to have every computing resource that your organization will ever, ever, ever need. Take, for instance, the IRS. They do not have to have all the computing resources available that would only be needed April 13th, 14th, and 15th of every year. They can rationalize their computing resources based on a year-long pattern of demand, and when they encounter those peak times, they can draw upon additional servers, additional storage. Same thing with universities and research institutions. Rather than having all the computing resources available that researchers might need at any given time, they can draw upon those resources as needed. And what's shocking is to find the lack of utilization of computing resources. And so really what we're seeing is a real rationalization of computing resources through the move to cloud computing. Cloud computing is still an emerging model. Your report and research identified eight fundamental elements that are vital to enabling the cloud concept to not just exist, but to grow to its fullest potential. Would you outline those eight fundamental elements of cloud computing? Well, uh, the first is you have to have universal connectivity. You have to be able to connect to cloud resources from wherever you are. It has to be accessible. Uh, it has to be reliable, and reliability is a is a huge issue today. Imagine if you're in the federal government and your agency information may not be available for any length of time. Those type of security and reliability issues come to the fore. The fourth element is interoperability and user choice. And what I mean by that is that you have really a a choice of what platform, what device you're going to be accessing the cloud from. What that means is that I can access the same computing resources, see the same interface, be able to have the same computing power regardless of what type of machine, what type of operating system, or where I'm located. And from a value perspective, what that also means is the shelf life of our computing resources we're used to today in our businesses and in government and in our personal lives. The day you take the the computer out of the box, it's out of date. Well, with cloud computing, that's not going to be the case because as long as you have the web browsing capabilities that are current, you can access the most current versions of, of software. And it really also rolls into the the uh, fifth element, which is security. You know, there's, there's kind of this mentality from an IT perspective that if I hold the data within my organization, it's going to be more secure than if it's located off-site. Well, as we've seen with uh, disasters and so forth, you need to have that redundancy built in. The sixth element deals with privacy, and privacy is certainly at the forefront of concerns with cloud computing. It's often one of the potential vulnerabilities that critics of cloud computing can attack the whole cloud idea on because there is this concept that there's going to be the capability to hack into data more easily and so forth. What we find is that oftentimes we inflate our organization's own security capabilities. And by doing so, we kind of fool ourselves into saying we have a much more secure environment than our competitors, than our other agencies, and and so forth. Well, 
truth be told, uh, because the, the cloud computing vendors, they invest massive resources in not just data security measures, but physical security measures and redundancies. And so what we've seen is that from a privacy perspective and from a security perspective, cloud offers a better way of computing. The seventh value deals with the economics, and as we've talked about before, computing resources can last longer via a cloud model. We're not having to buy and procure every server, every bit of capacity that we ever need. Even though storage is unbelievably cheap today, we can rationalize where we store data, how we store data, how it's accessible through the cloud model. And so what we've seen is that the early implementations of cloud computing, both in the private sector and in the public sector, have significant, significant ROI uh, built into them. The final thing is sustainability. This is a little bit of a concern, and one of the reasons that there sometimes is more of a hybrid model of cloud computing where, well, I'm going to engage with an outside vendor for cloud storage, for programs, and so forth, but I want to maintain some resources on site. So one thing we've seen is that there is a push toward the bigger players, the more established players. Uh, I can invest my resources with them and know I have a much more stable and sustainable model to follow and work with them for the long term. So there's a great deal of foundational security to the cloud computing marketplace. Dr. Wild, the developments in cloud computing are leading many inside and outside the public sector to ask if it works for business, why not for government? Well, your report does a wonderful job of outlining specific case studies of how cloud computing is being used presently across the public sector. Would you give us an overview of those more compelling illustrations of cloud computing in the public sector? I think what we've seen is that we're still in the early stages of all of this. And one thing that is central to how cloud is going to develop in the federal space is certainly the leadership of CIO Vivek Kundra. You know, he proved the value of cloud in his time as, as CTO of the District of Columbia and, you know, moving to the district to Google Apps, opening up district data, running contests to see, you know, how data could be better utilized and, and allowing citizens and, and programmers to participate in, in those. So we have a real champion in Mr. Kundra to guide the federal development. Certainly some of the more fascinating stuff that's being done is being done from a business side with the GSA in terms of creating a real storefront for cloud computing to be more widely adapted in the federal space. Their apps.gov becomes a central clearinghouse for, uh, hey, I have a data issue, a computing issue that I need to address. Let me go to apps.gov and see if there is a cloud app that I can use for my particular situation. NASA has been at the forefront uh, of all of this. They've created a cloud that's called the Nebula Cloud, uh, borrowing on uh, some rich language uh, for their purposes. But the Nebula Cloud is, is very interesting in terms of consolidating NASA's computing resources and enabling them to draw upon a centralized cloud capability. And it's also interesting because NASA sees this as a way to involve the public more in the space program and draw more interest. And certainly at a time where 
you know, there's been some controversy about where we go forward in terms of the space program. Their cloud effort is, is central to their strategy going forward for their entire organization. And certainly, we can't ignore what's going on in the DOD and the military space. There's been some very interesting uses of cloud from DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, and across the U.S. Army uh, in terms of their recruitment efforts as well. And yet, Dr. Wild, the whole notion of cloud computing is not without its uh, detractors. Would you tell us more about the critics of cloud computing and what motivates them? Well, I think there's two main motivations for the critics of cloud computing. The first are those that are concerned about the security and the privacy aspects, because they see this almost as, according to Richard Stallman, who's the founder of the Free Software Foundation, he sees cloud computing as a trap, that uh, we're going to get away from this decentralized model of computing that's evolved over time and revert back to something like you know, the 1950s, 1960s with the heydays of, of the mainframe computer. And that as we become more and more dependent on cloud resources, admittedly, you know, today, many, many of these cloud resources that people and organizations are drawing upon are free resources. Uh, you know, anyone who's using Gmail or one of the picture sharing services and so forth is in the clouds and may not realize it. As we use more and more cloud services in our daily lives and our work lives, uh, we're going to become more dependent on those cloud providers. And the argument is, as we go back to a more centralized form of computing, then those who control the cloud will control pricing and that we'll become dependent upon them and their resources for our very, you know, livelihoods. And I think that economic argument fails in comparison to those who criticize the cloud from the security and the privacy perspectives, because there is there are significant criticisms of cloud over the fear that because you're maintaining resources, important data in these centralized repositories, often, you know, perhaps outside of the U.S., then there's concern over how secure is that data? Can I be able to reliably access it over the long term? With transmission of the data between the cloud and my own computer, is there a greater chance of it being hacked, of it being stolen, uh, of it being intentionally corrupted, and so forth? So there are some concerns, but what I can say is that after about 18 months of investigation and working with cloud providers and customers, the links that have been gone to and will continue to be done to assure that cloud utilization is even more secure than you know having data on your laptop that's carried through airport security that may or may not make it through the other end, it's a far more secure environment. Dr. Weil, what are some of the significant challenges facing government leaders as they work to integrate cloud computing into their IT strategy? Well, I think we've talked uh, a good bit today about the security and, and reliability uh, issues, and so I'll move on to some of the other issues. And one one issue that is important, particularly in the federal space, is that the government is going to be a, a huge buyer in the cloud computing market. And as such, 
they can exert a, a great deal of, of not just regulatory power, but market power in shaping how the cloud market is going to evolve and what products and services are, are going to be out there. And so, yes, there's going to be a need to regulate cloud computing, but government as a huge buyer, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local levels and internationally, will be an important force in the cloud marketplace. Certainly, there's going to be legal issues that are going to arise, and, and uh, we're encountering already some interesting um, cases that our law is going to have to evolve to meet the needs of the cloud computing environment that we, we live in today. I think one of the more exciting things about all this is you know that we can demonstrate a good return on investment by shifting to cloud resources you know if we're talking about the move to to e-government this certainly i think it makes that faster and as governments around the world have seen we've seen cases from uh, there's a very interesting case brought in the report dealing with the government of Japan and some of their coordinated efforts the government of the United Kingdom has a has a huge cloud undertaking right now and what we're seeing is that the move toward cloud is demonstrated based on we're able to do more in challenging budget times by investing in cloud computing the final thing I'll talk about is how this changes the nature of, of IT work. I mentioned earlier in the interview about no longer having to worry about manual upgrades of every computer in your organization uh, to have the latest software, the latest security software, and, and, and so forth, with the cloud taking care of that from the remote locations. What's interesting is that as we advance in the cloud model and we make strides toward where more and more computing is done via cloud resources, it's really going to change the nature of IT in the organization and change for the better the nature of IT work. There's a question whether, it, do we need less people in IT? And in the short term, the answer will probably be yes because there's going to be an, uh, a decline in in the need for organizations to have that shop where all the broken computers go to and people have their hands in boxes and, and trying to do that type of work. There's going to be less need for the people to run around and do manual upgrades on 500 computers in an agency location in Oklahoma City. But there's going to be more demand for higher level IT work in terms of education and training and, and writing the contracts uh, and evaluating bids for cloud computing resources. So we're going to have less hands-on work in the IT area and more value-added work in the IT area. Let's focus on next steps that public managers can take. Would you outline your cloud migration strategy? Uh, I outline a, a six-step uh, process that I call the, the cloud migration strategy. And the first step is learning. And, and through reading the report that's free and available on the web through the IBM Center for the Business of Government is an excellent place to start. There's plenty of great resources out there on the web uh, for learning about cloud computing. So it can be a uh, very no-cost proposition to, to learn more about it. The second step, though, is to assess your own organization. What are your IT needs? What's your IT utilization? You need to come up with a real honest IT baseline. And what organizations often find is in looking inward, 
they're shocked uh, in terms of how little their computing resources are, are utilized, uh, often finding that their server utilization might be 3 to 5%. And so why do we have 95% of the capacity that we have if it's sitting there idle 95% of the time? And so I think that is a step every organization should take today because they need to see how they're using not just their servers, but their desktops, their laptops, how much of computing resources are really, really being utilized. The third step is to pick a specific project and try a cloud pilot. Again, I would urge don't try 10 different projects, but concentrate on one pilot area in terms of how we can use cloud resources in the organization. Uh, one of the fascinating things that I found and, and continue to uh, to learn about through, through my ongoing research in, into cloud computing is how many organizations are in the cloud and don't know it. You know, quite honestly, uh, you know, employees that use social networking tools, that use photo sharing sites in their own work, they use Google Apps uh, for their own documents, all of a sudden there's a real merger between what they're doing in their private lives and what they're doing in their work lives. Particularly, you know, in the federal sector, we always talk about uh, the challenge of, of recruiting and retaining the best workers. Well, cloud resources are something that younger workers in particular expect to see today. They cannot see how to do their jobs without it. So it's a real almost HR issue today, not just an IT issue in terms of, of holding on to, to workers. The fourth step is after you have done a cloud pilot, assessed how it works for your organization, then you really need to look wider throughout the organization, building upon that IT baseline study that you've done, and see where does this fit. Are there programs? Are there applications? Is there data that is cloud eligible? On the other hand, are there things that are cloud ineligible that have to be maintained in-house? And so if you look at data from a security standpoint and so forth, certainly there are elements that are going to be cloud ineligible. The fifth step is to really begin a serious cloud rollout strategy. Gain buy-in from your users, from your IT people. The users are often the easiest ones to convince because if what's on their desktop, if what's on their laptop is better than, than what they had, uh, they're going to they're gonna love you. Finally, we enter a stage where, uh, borrowing upon my management background, I, I call it uh, continuous cloud improvement, where you try to learn about what you can do better with cloud computing, learn what other organizations are doing in the cloud area, and, and benchmark and model their best practices. And certainly, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer uh, that uh, that the public sector should uh, should benchmark the private sector, and in the private sector can learn a great deal from what the federal and state and local governments are doing in terms of their cloud models and utilization. The experts have said, we're really just at the tip of the iceberg right now. Dr. Weil, that's a wonderful perspective, and I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed talking with you and your audience today. What are some of the cyber challenges facing government executives? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. 
urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. In this final segment, I switch gears from cloud computing to cybersecurity and welcome Margie Graves, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, to offer her insights on cyber and the challenges facing government agencies. So perhaps you could begin uh, by get it, get, giving us a sense of what is meant by cyber and why securing our cyber world is so important. So I guess we'll start with a little cyber 101. Um, you know, our world is digitally connected on our personal and professional lives, as well as our interactions and transactions with our governments, local and federal. They're all enabled by technology. And this has been highlighted even more dramatically by the COVID epidemic. Um, Global societies are dependent on technology and the internet to transact business. We're all very used to the convenience of being able to use online banking, to renew our car registrations with the DMV, or to order practically anything and everything online and have it delivered to our homes. And now that we're working from home, it's even more clear that most of our professional interactions can be supported in that virtual environment also. And my hope is that we actually retain some of the good things that we've learned from operating in the virtual world, even when we're able to return to in-person venues. Securing these environments is so critical because there are nation states, hackers, and common criminals that try to disrupt and usurp online activity for their own purposes. And they generally have nefarious intent, and this can sometimes lead to more dire consequences, everything from personal financial loss to the compromise of national security and loss of life and everything in between. And if a criminal has stolen your personal identity and gained access to your accounts, theft can be the result. If a nation state's gained access to government systems, then the national security is compromised. That's a great uh, point there. Margie, so you come from uh, a a recent stint as deputy CIO uh, for the federal government out of OMB. What are some of the key cyber threats facing U.S. federal government departments? Well, these threats are the kinds of things that keep government officials up at night. I mean, these are not just uh, things that affect the technical environment. Uh, So obviously the CIOs and and their organizations are worried about this on a continuous basis, but every uh, federal official knows what the impact can be if things actually go awry. The adversaries are more and more sophisticated. There are so many threat vectors and they continue to multiply. We've just seen in the solar winds attack the exploitation of software supply chain uh, vectors. And this was a zero day attack. Our defense can no longer be static. It has to be responsive in real time. For example, there was no signature for this attack. So it wasn't like we could have have uh, compared uh, against a a particular signature that we already had in our possession and, and been able to find it. So, Uh, These things are more and more sophisticated. Uh, They're getting uh, to the point where uh, they're ubiquitous and they're very um, evolving over time. So constantly changing, constantly evolving. 
And we have to be vigilant and evolving in the same manner at the same time if we're ever going to get out in front of this. Could you identify for us some of the innovative ways that U.S. federal agencies are trying to combat some of the threats you outlined earlier? Uh, sure. I think there's a, a strong recognition, and you you see it um, discussed in all of the open forums that we have today, particularly by our most critical experts in this arena, people who have lived this and breathed this and understand exactly what it means to get it right and to get it wrong, have been discussing this in forums such as uh, hearings uh, in the Homeland Security arena and also uh, in good government groups and uh, within agency interactions to make sure that we are all trying to collectively combine our knowledge and our innovation and our ideas to be able to attack this problem. You see a lot of agencies looking to implement the concept of zero trust, and zero trust is assuming that an individual or a location or a device can't be trusted and must be continuously validated. That means that you can't simply gain access to an environment or an application or something of that nature and then uh, move laterally with unfettered access across that entire environment that you constantly have to be reevaluated in terms of every transaction that you take on. Uh, So for example, if I'm looking at the balances on my retirement account, let's take TSP because that's one that most government officials are familiar with. If you you look at the retirement account, you are required to have a username and password, but also you receive a device authentication and a code uh, that is sent to you. And you can use that code one time. And once that transaction is completed, then the next transaction, you have to be revalidated and you would get another code. That's what I'm talking about. The vulnerability disclosure and the immediate response to that is another thing that agencies are looking at today. Uh, OMB issued a requirement for agencies to up their game in this arena to be more proactive in terms of their identification of vulnerabilities, in terms of crowdsourcing from all corporate entities as well as government entities who use certain types of software, what those vulnerabilities might be, and then conducting an immediate response. CISA and DHS has talked about being more timely in this arena and to be able to have some authorities to actually shut down activity while things are patched and and brought back to normal. And then finally, proactive defense. And that means primarily upping the game in terms of our hunt capability. Uh, We have often been relegated to, I think, response and recovery, as opposed to proactively going after the adversary once we have some hint Uh, that there is some activity going on. So the ability to do that is very important, and we need to balance our primary defenses with the ability to hunt the adversary. And one of the things I'd like to add to that, making sure that we are exchanging information in this environment is, is key, and metering our endpoint devices, i.e. our points of entry, Uh, so that we are constantly looking at their configurations and their behavior and identifying anomalous behavior uh, because that is usually a key indication of 
some activity that's going on that shouldn't be. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'd like to thank all of my guests for joining me today. You can download any report discussed today and all Senate reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join me next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.